a system that's more advanced than what I'm used to. And so this morning, I pretty much just had to kind of stand back and let Phil work, you know, because <laughs> there's nothing I could do to help. But we are, we are good to go now. Uh, my name is Thomas Bailey, and I live in Exeter. I'm with Creation Ministries International. Uh, we've got a lot to get through uh, in this session, so I'll give you a little bit more introduction about myself and the ministry in the next session in the service. Uh, but for now, let's uh, get into our talk titled, in According to Their Kinds. You know, children ask some really good questions, don't they? Sometimes they ask questions that are a little challenging and hard for us to answer. One of the uh, classic ones, of course, is called, uh, is why is the sky blue? There is a scientific answer for that one, but we're not always prepared for that, are we? And then, of course, there's the one we all look forward to. Where do babies come from? Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about that this morning. Parents, you can deal with that one on your own. But, you know, an even bigger question than that that we all have is where did everything come from? And that's a question people have been asking for thousands of years. We look around at everything around us. We see the sky and the cosmos. We look around at us, all these living things in our world. And we where did all this come from? And, and there's really two basic explanations. One is maybe did it come around naturally by random chance processes over billions of years, no real intelligence behind it? Or was it all, in fact, created or designed? Now, there's other explanations out there, but those are the two main ones we're going to look at this morning. Now, in looking at these two possibilities, let's look to see what the Bible has to say. We look at Genesis 1.11, and it says, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. Further down in uh, verse 21, God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. Further down, it says he created the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds. Are, are you sensing a theme here? <laughs> All of these different creatures are being created by God according to their kinds. Now we get to verse 26 and we get something a little different. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the, the livestock and so on. And so there's something distinct about human beings being made in the image of God, given dominion over all of the other living creatures. But you see that pattern all the way through. All of these different living things are created according to their kinds to reproduce according to their kinds. And we see that around us, right? We see different kinds reproducing that way, not one thing turning gradually into something completely different. So dogs make dogs, cows make cows, dandelions make dandelions. That's what we observe in nature, and that's what we're told in Genesis, that, the way God created. In fact, you know, the, the famous atheist Richard Dawkins once said this, We have seen that living things are too improbable and too beautifully designed to have come into existence by chance. Now, please understand, Richard Dawkins is an atheist. He does not believe in any intelligent designer, much less a god of any kind. So he doesn't believe that anything was actually designed. He believes it was all random chance accident over billions of years. But in this book, 
he's admitting that everything really does look very well, very much designed. And, and that's true. And that fits in with what we understand from the Bible. But no, Richard Dawkins believes in something called evolution. And there's really a couple of different uh, definitions for evolution. And sometimes they get confused. One we can borrow from a fellow named Gerald Kirkut. He said, evolution is the theory that all the living forms in the world have arisen from a single source which itself came from an inorganic form. Pretty good overall definition of what we call evolution. The idea that at one point there was a single-celled common ancestor. No one knows where that came from. And then over time, it gradually evolved and changed and became more complex than all the living things that we see in the world. And this idea was largely uh, popularized by a fellow named Charles Darwin. Anybody ever heard of him? Right? Back in 1859, he wrote this book with a really long title, uh, commonly known as The Origin of the Species. Now, he, he came up with this idea that everything started from a single-celled common ancestor, and that over time it gradually evolved into what he would call the evolutionary tree of life. You start with that single cell living thing, over time as things reproduce, there's variation that happens, and we see variation in our world, and eventually you get different kinds of plants and fish and all kinds of different creatures, and it branches out like that. That was the vision he put forward. Now, he wasn't the first one to ever talk about evolution, but he popularized the idea. Now, I wonder if there's any, uh, obviously this is very different than from what the Bible tells us, so are there any consequences to people beginning to think that everything came about this way naturally without God? Atheist Frank Zindler said this in a debate. He said the most devastating thing, though, that biology did to Christianity was the discovery of biological evolution. Now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there is no need of salvation. If there is no need of salvation, there is no need of a savior, and I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. See, he's pointing out that if evolution is true, as Darwin and others have described it, then there's no need. There, obviously, there was no real Adam and Eve, so no sin, no need for a savior. Right? It gets, it gets rid of the whole biblical narrative. It just doesn't really fit. Now, there are some that have suggested that maybe God used some kind of a, a system of evolution in order to create. Some well-meaning theologians have put that idea forward. But one of the other big questions we can ask in our world is, why is there so much pain and suffering in our world? People have been asking that for thousands of years too. Now, if your worldview is you're an atheist and there is no God, well then the answer to that is tough. That's just the way it is. It's dog eat dog, so to speak. Right? So if there's pain and suffering because that's just, just how things are. On the other hand, biblically, we know that God originally created the heavens and the earth very good. And there wasn't any death or any pain or suffering in the world until Adam sinned. And then Adam's sin brought pain and suffering into our world, and that's the world we live in now. But God has promised a restoration of that very good world still to come. 
a, a new heavens and a new earth for, for those who are, are believing in God through Jesus. We can once again have eternity with God, with no death and no suffering. All of that's going to be restored. That's the promise. On the other hand, if somebody suggests that God used a system of millions of years of evolution in order to create, and really what they're kind of saying is that God used millions of years of all that death and suffering in order to create. And that, that causes a crisis of faith for a number of people, or it certainly has. Another atheist named Jacques Minot said this. He said, the struggle for life and elimination of the weakest is a horrible process. I am surprised that a Christian would defend the idea that this is the process which God more or less set up in order to have evolution. See, he's an atheist who understands. Like he doesn't believe the Bible, but he understands that the, the biblical record of original sin messing everything up and that God's restoration makes more sense than the idea that God used evolution to create. I understand well-meaning people putting this idea forward, but here's some of the natural consequences of that kind of thinking. It makes God into some kind of a monster. And unfortunately, that has been a crisis of faith for a number of people, including some well-known folks like this guy, Charles Templeton. He was a uh, well-known, oh, we've lost uh, signal somehow. I think I stepped on a cord. All right. Charles Templeton was a uh, well-known evangelist back in the 1950s. He was good friends with Billy Graham, and uh, he used to preach crusades all over the place. But at some point, it was determined he needed to learn more theology. So he went off to Princeton University, and while he was there, he learned about evolution. And before he died, Charles Templeton wrote a book titled Farewell to God. My reasons for rejecting the Christian faith. Something happened to Charles Templeton. In the book he wrote, I believe there is no supreme being with human attributes, no God in the biblical sense, but that life is the result of timeless evolutionary forces having reached its present transient state over millions of years. So he accepted evolution to the point where he believed the Bible doesn't make sense anymore. There, there really isn't a God after all. Another atheist by the name of Dr. William Provine laid it out this way. He said, let me summarize my views on what modern evolutionary biology tells us loud and clear. And I must say, these are basically Darwin's views. There are no gods, no purposeful forces of any kind, no life after death. When I die, I am absolutely certain I'm going to be completely dead. That's just all. That's going to be the end of me. There's no ultimate foundation for ethics, no ultimate meaning in life, and no free will for humans either. Not a very uh, optimistic point of view, is it? Now, this fellow actually, he was raised in the church as a young man, studied evolutionary biology and taught it for many years, and as far as we know, he died as an atheist. So. There is some negative effect to taking on this idea that everything came by natural processes from a common ancestor without the need for God. Now, I mentioned that there's another definition for evolution, and you may have heard this one uh, b before. It's basically uh, change over time, right? People think evolution is just change over time. And if that's all it is, then that would mean I'm an evolutionist. 
Because we do envision, we do actually see change in living creatures over time. We can call that natural selection. We can call it artificial selection. Anybody who's ever uh, bred dogs or cows, you know you can do selective breeding and change happens over time. Happens naturally as well. But is it the right kind of change for common descent from a common ancestor like Darwin envisioned? All right. Now it's the point where I need to look at my notes here. <laughs> now, Darwin was not the first person to talk about natural selection. There was actually a fellow named Edward Blythe, uh, who was a creationist at the time, who uh, wrote about it about 20 years before Darwin's book. But he saw it just as a, a system of culling. You know, creatures with certain traits uh, that have a, a, you know, lend a survival advantage in a certain environment, they survive, while other traits that don't help them out, they, those die out and those get lost from the population. But Darwin took it a little farther than that. You see, he went out and he observed natural selection change over time, but he already believed that the earth was many millions of years old. So he took what he observed and he extrapolated that way farther than he could see. Now extrapolation is a useful technique, but it can go too far. For example, um, I have a couple of uh, grandchildren, and uh, one of them is uh, seven years old now, but when he was first born, he was actually 23 and three-quarter inches long, or we'll say uh, about 24 inches long, just to round it off, all right? Let me see if I can, no, that's not helping me. All right, I'm gonna have to move on through these slides. There's him, all right, extrapolation. We're getting there, we're getting there. All right, so he was 24 inches roughly when he was born. When he was two years old, they measured his height at 34 inches. So he grew obviously 10 inches in two years or an average of five inches per year. So if we take that data and we extrapolate that, then do the math, and by the time he's uh, 10 years old, he should be six, uh, six foot two. And by the time he's 18 years old, he ought to be nine foot six. Anybody nine foot six in here? I'm in my 50s, man. What happened to me? See, we laugh at that because we know that there's limitations to how much a living thing can, can grow within certain parameters, right? And so that's why it's a problem to extrapolate things beyond what we can see. Darwin didn't know a lot about the cell. He thought it was just a little blob of matter. One thing he did not know about is this thing called DNA. It's this tiny molecule that's in all living things that contains the coded information needed to make that organism into whatever it's going to be. All of your traits are coded in there. And that gets inherited from one generation to the next. So if we go back to Darwin's idea of a single-celled common ancestor, it's going to have a certain amount of genetic information in it to make it that single cell. And the sing simplest single-celled uh, creature that we know of that can reproduce has a, almost 600,000 chemical letters or nucleotides in its DNA. So that means it's got a certain amount of information to give it all of the features that it needs to have. But if we want to go to things that are more complex than that, let's say all the way to a human being, which has three billion base pairs of, of those chemical letters in our DNA, that's a massive increase in information 
from those 600,000 to 3 billion. So for evolution to work, you need a massive amount of increased, uh, more information that isn't already there. Where's it going to come from? And so the question is, can natural selection make this happen? Natural selection is something we observe. Can it create new information? Here's an example of a uh, population of dogs. Now, all of our DNA comes in pairs. You get half of it from your mom, half from your dad. So you don't necessarily always get the same expressions of each gene for any particular trait that you have from mom and dad. You know this, right? Somebody will say you have your mother's ears or your father's eyes, right? Because you, you recognize that. So let's look at simply one trait in a population of dogs. We'll look at the length of fur. And so in this case, mom and dad each have a, uh, an expression of the gene that will uh, code for long fur and one for short fur. And so they've got medium length fur. Now when they have offspring, each of them is going to pass on one of the versions of that gene to each of their offspring. Not necessarily always the same one, and it's gonna, we're going to end up with different variations. So some of the offspring will get the long hair gene from one, the short hair gene from the other, they'll have medium length fur. Some will get the short hair gene from both parents and they'll have short fur. Some will get the long hair gene from both and they'll have long fur. Make sense so far? Already you see variation in just one generation, just from genetics. Now, let's suppose we move those dogs to the Arctic. Gets really, really cold and the wind blows. Which of those dogs do you think are most likely to survive? Be the ones with the long hair gene, right? The ones with the long fur. The ones with short and medium length fur are more likely to die out over time in those conditions. And so now you've got long haired dogs. And when they have offspring, what length of fur do you think they'll have? They're going to have long fur. Because <laughs> the only genes they have is long fur. They don't have the short haired gene anymore. So now you've got a whole population of dogs with long fur in a really cold environment. And the evolutionists might say, hey, that's changed over time. They've adapted to their environment, they, right? They survived. But did they gain any new information? No, they lost information, right? They didn't come into this cold environment and say, wow, it's cold here, I gotta grow long fur. They have it because it was already in their DNA. You take those same dogs and move them to somewhere hot, like the Mojave Desert, let's say, and they'll be crying for that short hair gene. But they can't get it back. It's lost from the population. They can't pass on to their offspring what they don't have. So natural selection is change over time, but it is change in the wrong direction for what evolution needs. Evolution needs a massive increase in new information that isn't already there. Now, we do certainly see variation in our world, amongst dogs and wolves, for example, right? Probably all dogs descend from some wolf or dog-like kind at some point in time. And uh, we can look at different, uh, different examples. We see that this is a dog, for example. And this is a dog. This is a dog. And they tell us this is a dog. See, right here, this tells me evolution doesn't work, man. That's not an improvement on anything. The only way that guy survives is if someone carries him around in her purse and feeds him treats, right? But that's the kind of variation that's possible within that 
canine kind, if you will. Right? See, God didn't make a bunch of species. He created kinds, probably much larger groupings of living things. And from there, we get all kinds of uh, different dogs and dingoes, wolves, foxes, all of these different variations within a created kind. But what we don't see is some, a dog turning into something else like a, a cat or a salamander. Walter Fite put it this way. He's a zoologist. He said, the very name selection implies that you're choosing between two or more variants. So that means the end result is extinction of one in favor of the other, like those dogs with the long fur. Natural selection never increases the number of variants. It only decreases them. So how does a mechanism that makes less and less end up making more and more? I'll give you one more analogy of this. Suppose we start with a unicycle. It's got certain parts in it, right? It's got a seed, it's got a wheel. Now, what would we need to select from the unicycle to make a bicycle? We can use the wheel, we can use the pedals, but see, we also need a second wheel, and we need handlebars and a chain. There aren't enough parts in the unicycle to select to make the thing that's a little bigger and more complex. Go a little further, it gets even worse. Go to a moped or a motorcycle, you've got some similar parts there, but there's a lot of new parts there that you just can't select from the bicycle. So natural selection really doesn't move in the right direction. Now somebody could be thinking, well wait, oh, I just want to go quickly back to Darwin's idea of that tree of life. People used to say the creationists believe that God created all known species today the way they are and nothing's ever changed. That's not true. God created those created kinds like we talked about in Genesis 1 and he front-loaded enough genetic information to allow for adaptation to survive in different environments and that's what we observe in our world. So we have all this tremendous diversity amongst those different kinds of living creatures. Now somebody could be thinking, what about mutations? You know, we, we hear about these, we all get mutations in our DNA and natural selection, we maybe act on that, and if we get enough mutations, we can all be superheroes. It might work in the comic books, but it doesn't actually work in real life. Mutations don't work that way. What are mutations? They're basically copying errors in your DNA. Remember I mentioned that your DNA is made up of chemical letters or nucleotides. There's, there's four basic letters in all of your DNA. And as cells divide over time, copying errors happen as those get copied. There's mechanism to prevent some of those mistakes, but a lot of them do get through. And so we end up with uh, different kinds of copying errors, like one letter put in where another one was supposed to be, two of them get switched back and forth, that sort of thing. And of course that maxes up the information code. I'll give you a great analogy of this. Let's suppose I were to uh, put on a piece of paper, once upon a time there was a little girl named Goldilocks. And if I were to hand that piece of paper to Peter here, and say, I want you to make a copy of that and then pass the copy on to the next person. And then the next person copy that and pass that on. Always passing on the copy, never the original or the one you just got. What do you think is going to happen over time? You ever play the telephone game? Right? Mistakes are going to get ha happen over time, those copying errors. And eventually we'll get something like, once upon Tim there was a Whittle Grill Narn Boldy Glocks. 
Now, it's kind of funny sounding, but we could sort of still understand what it's trying to tell us, even with those errors. Well, if we were to pass that sheet of paper around to thousands or millions or, or billions of people over time, eventually, of course, we're going to get the works of Shakespeare. That's what evolutionists would like you to believe. That if you get enough of those mutations over time, you're going to get new and more complex and more information, but it doesn't work that way. Never mind the works of Shakespeare. Dawkins again, he said, there is enough information capacity in a single human cell to store the Encyclopedia Britannica, all 30 volumes of it, three or four times over. Now, for you young people, an encyclopedia is this big bunch of books we used to have. It's before Google, okay? It's a massive amount of information. But even if you took that and ran it through a computer program that was going to make a copying error every so often, eventually you get something you couldn't even read. Because mutations, generally speaking, mess things up. A fellow by the name of Dr. Lee Spetner once said, all point mutations that have been studied on the molecular level turn out to reduce the genetic information and not to increase it. And yet that's what evolution needs. Now, somebody might say, well, what about beneficial mutations? Don't they happen? Yes, they do occasionally, but they're few and far between, and they mostly happen within certain environments. For example, Dar Darwin went to the island of Madeira near Portugal, and he observed a population of beetles that didn't have any wings. Most beetles have wings. See, Madeira is a windy island, and what would happen normally is these beetles would fly up in the air, they'd get blown into the ocean, they, they would die. But a mutation occurred that caused some beetles to, be, to bo be born that couldn't form wings. So they couldn't fly up in the air. They couldn't get blown into the ocean. So they survived. Now, of course, the evolutionists might say There's, that's evolution. They survived. They adapted. <laughs> but did they gain any new information? No, they lost information. Generally speaking, not having wings for a beetle is not a good deal. But in this case, it conferred a benefit in that environment. And that's about as far as beneficial mutations tend to go. They're beneficial in a certain environment, but there's still a loss of genetic information. Another one is uh, Helicobacter pylori. It's a bacteria that causes stomach ulcers. Now, these can be treated with antibiotics because these bacteria contain an enzyme. And when the enzyme is in the presence of an antibiotic, the antibiotic will stick to it, turn it into a poison, and kill the bacteria. That's essentially how that works. But once in a while, a mutation occurs in which the enzyme isn't developed in the bacteria. And so when it's in the presence of antibiotic, there's no enzyme to stick to. And so it doesn't turn it into a poison. The bacteria survives. This is often given as an example of evolution. They've changed, they've adapted, but did they gain any new information? Again, they lost information. Normally that enzyme is necessary for other things. So the examples we hear about in our time for beneficial mutations usually are things that were already there. They didn't develop them in a certain circumstance, and just all the other ones died out. Here's a fun one. Beneficial mutations are kind of few and far between. Way back in the 1950s, a fellow named J.B.S. Haldane posed this dilemma. 
He said, suppose you have a population of ape-like creatures 10 million years ago, farther back than anybody has ever suggested that uh, humans started branching off from ape-like creatures. And you've got this population of 100,000 apes, two of them, a male and a female, developed the same beneficial mutation. Now, in order for that to be any good in the population, it has to basically take over the whole population. Otherwise, it just dies out with them. Well, let's suppose that in one generation of about 20 years, all of the other apes besides those two die out. And they're able to replenish that population of 100,000 apes in one generation of 20 years. And now those 100,000 apes, they all have the same beneficial mutation. It's, it's kind of an unlikely scenario, but follow the logic. Now, let's suppose this unlikely thing happens every generation for 10 million years. What you end up with is 500,000 generations, and so 500,000 new beneficial mutations are in that population of ape-like creatures. Sounds pretty good, right? Well, that actually equates to only 0.02% of the human genome. So much for being able to evolve from a common ancestor into a human being. You've probably heard the idea that there's only about 1 or 2% difference between human and chimp DNA. That's a myth. That's based on early studies, uh, very incomplete studies. More recent studies indicate the difference is at least 5%. Some are saying as much as 15%. But even at 1%, even with that unlikely scenario that uh, Haldane put forward, you don't get anywhere close to even that 1%. And a more realistic scenario, he said, would be one beneficial mutation every 300 generations. So there just hasn't been enough time for an ape-like creature to evolve into a human being, even in all of evolutionary history since the Big Bang. But mutations do accumulate. Now, they're not all serious enough that natural selection takes them out. There are some that are so serious that, you know, that organism doesn't survive. See, we might think that natural selection will, will see a, a tiny mutation and take it out, but it doesn't operate at the molecular level. Natural selection operates at this level. You've got to take out the whole creature. So what tends to happen is that most mutations, which are mostly uh, destructive or at the very best neutral, they accumulate. And when they accumulate, it works a little bit like rust on a car. A little bit of rust, and you know, a lot of you know, it's not very noticeable. Car still runs, but if it's allowed to continue to accumulate over and over again, you end up with something that is so full of rust that it just falls apart, and and it just doesn't work anymore. And so, what we know from genetics is that some mutations are heritable, which means they get passed on to the next generation. And it's been estimated 50 to 100 new mutations get passed on to every generation. So what does that mean? That means that you have probably upwards of 100 mutations that your parents didn't have. Your children will have those plus another 100, and their children will have those plus... You see how it accumulates? It's called genetic load. Evolutions are, evolutionists are confounded, because if we've been around for 200,000 years as homo sapiens, why are we not already extinct at that level of mutation? Of course, it works out a lot better if we've only been around, say, a few thousand years, like the Bible tells us. But those mutations do accumulate over time. Now I'm going to have to talk about information, I think. 
I was going to mention a fellow by the name, uh, a geneticist named John Sanford, who did research on this. And he, he created a program called Mendel's Accountant, where he put in certain parameters, so many mutations every generation, over about 200 generations. And he ended up with a graph that kind of slopes down in a curve like this, showing the general overall fitness of the population deteriorates over time, indicating that basically we're, we're not going up and up and up like evolutionists want us to believe. We're actually going downhill. And that fits with what the Bible says about living in a fallen world and things are subject to decay and so forth until that restoration occurs. Now he did another graph using uh, data from another source. He went to the Bible. And you may remember early on in Genesis, people lived hundreds and hundreds of years. Noah lived to be 950. And then his son Shem only lived to be 600. And as you read through the generations, the lifespans get shorter and shorter. And so he, he graphed that out. He ended up with the kind of same the slope as what he got from the, uh, from the program. This is not definitive proof of anything you understand, but it's interesting that there's a correlation between those graphs as if maybe something happened to, um, as if something happened at the genetic bottleneck that happened at Noah's flood, that maybe something genetic got lost. All right, I want to take a few minutes to talk about information. Mentioned the DNA is an information code. Well, here's, a, here's some coded information. We recognize that one, right? If you're as old as I am, you might remember this fella. Remember, he had a song. Abkadefka Jekamurnak says, sing it with me. No. It's a ridiculous song because that's not a word, right? That's our alphabet. It has all the coded information in it needed for us to create words and sentences and, and convey meaning in English and many other languages. But that itself doesn't give us any real information. And neither does the ink that we might use to write that out. Information is kind of an intangible thing, but we need that information in our DNA. Let's suppose I were to put this on a piece of paper. Who can tell me what that says? You don't recognize that one? Okay, well, how about this one? Let's say I get some orange paint. I put that on paper. Who can tell me what that is? Orange, right? <laughs> you recognize that. We recognize the letters. We, know, we can sound it out. We know what that word means in English, right? So let's go back to this one. What's that, what's that word say? Orange. Yeah, see, you can guess now because you saw the other one, right? But in order to read it first, you would have to understand Japanese syllabary. That each one of those shapes represents a syllable in Japanese. You sound it out, it's orangey for orange. You have to be able to know what that, those symbols, what those convey as information. But was there any information in the paint? Or the ink? Right? No, there's no information in the actual matter. It's, there's something else going on there. And it's the same thing going on in our DNA. Philosopher of science Karl Popper put it this way. He said, what makes the origin of life and the genetic code a disturbing riddle is this. The genetic code is without any biological function unless it is translated. But the machinery by which the cell translates the code consists of at least 50 macromolecular components which are themselves coded in the DNA. Thus the code cannot be translated except by using certain products of its translation. Let me translate that. 
All those instructions are coded in our DNA to make everything that we need to be. But in order for that information to do any good, it has to be translated by these tiny molecular machines. But in order to get the machines, you have to decode the information that's on the DNA so you can build the machines. So you decode the information in the DNA to make the machines that decode the information that make the machine. Do you see the problem here? It's kind of a chicken and egg problem. It's a real issue for anybody who wants to tell us that DNA and the first cell came about without any intelligence. It's all, all got to be there from the start. Expert on uh, information, Werner Goetz, said this. He said, a code system is always the result of a mental process. It requires an intelligent origin or inventor. It should be emphasized that matter as such is unable to generate any code. There is no known law of nature, no known process, and no known sequence of events which can cause information to originate by itself in matter. Oddly enough, astrobiologist Paul Davies once said something similar. He said, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. He said, there's no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. Now, please understand, Paul Davies doesn't believe in an intelligent designer or a god. He believes everything came about by random chance. But he's, he's admitting nobody has any idea how that first living cell could possibly come into being, horrendously complex as it is, without some intelligence behind it. Back to Get. He said, all experiences indicate that a thinking being voluntarily ex exercising his own free will, cognition, and creativity is required. So you need a thinking being for the Goldilocks story. You need a thinking being like Shakespeare to write Shakespeare. How imagine the level of intelligence needed to create DNA, as horrendously complex as that is. I want to uh, show this video that uh, we've been working on. Uh, a couple minutes long here, then this shows just a little bit of what's going on in your cells on a regular basis. This animation demonstrates how the digital information encoded within DNA is used to direct protein synthesis. This is a DNA double helix containing the digital code which directs the cell in all aspects of operation. And here, we see a protein complex called an RNA polymerase traveling down the DNA strand. As it moves down the strand, it carefully unwinds the DNA, preparing it for transcription. Inside the polymerase, we see a single-stranded copy of the original instructions being assembled as individual bases are positioned and added to the growing strand. A stop code marks the end of the protein specification, at which point this copy, known as a messenger RNA transcript, exits the polymerase and heads towards a two-part chemical manufacturing machine called the ribosome. While the messenger RNA moves towards the ribosome, transfer RNA molecules attached to specific amino acids in preparation for assembly. As the messenger RNA transcript passes through the ribosome, the process of translation begins. Using the instructions encoded on the messenger RNA as a template, the transfer RNA molecules align specific sequences of bases to corresponding amino acids, creating a protein chain. As this chain exits the ribosome, it is met by chaperones which prevent premature folding, while escorting the protein to a barrel-shaped machine called the chaperoning.
this machine helps fold the protein into the precise shape required to perform its function. Although it is unclear how the chaperone achieves this, we do know that accurate folding is essential in order for the protein to accomplish its intended function. Once the protein is complete, it is released into the cytoplasm to do its job. Isn't evolution amazing? <laughs> now, we see something like that. I think we can uh, agree with the psalmist here who said, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, right down to the tiniest molecule. Uh, we've, we've gone through a lot of information already, but there's, there's heaps more in the, uh, in the DNA, and you, and you can dig into it more as you wish. Here's the Apostle Paul back in uh, Romans 1.20. He said, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul's telling us that ever since creation, we've been able to look around at what's created and be able to see God in that. And how much more so today? With everything that we know about the cosmos, about biology, about molecules, all, all this incredible design everywhere, boy, are we without excuse for seeing that there is a creator, one that's been revealed to us in the word of God. And yet there are so many that will deny that because they want to follow some other idea that unfortunately just doesn't really hold water. All right, we're going, I think I'm just about out of time, so I'll uh, quickly highlight a couple of items we have available. If you want to dig into this subject a little further, uh, there's Evolution's Achilles Heels. It's on the table out there. If you want to get some science behind the DNA and molecules, fossils, another uh, number of other things as well. And then uh, a DVD called Creatures Do Change, But It's Not Evolution. This is a biologist talking about, in more detail, why natural selection that we see every day is not evolution uh, from molecules to human beings. And uh, another DVD that just came out recently called Dismantled. Another, a scientific deconstruction of the whole theory of evolution uh, written by a couple of geneticists that really dug into things that Darwin didn't know about. Uh, and if you really want to know more about the cell, Dr. Robert Carter did one called the high-tech cell. Looking at DNA a little further, shows it codes on, in four different dimensions simultaneously. And we're learning more and more about it all the time. I'll mention this one next time. It's the Creation Answers book covers a number of things about DNA and fossils and a number of other biblical topics that come into play with science. And we have a magazine called Creation Magazine, which I'll talk about a little more in the next session, but that's available. Uh, so you can get some of this kind of information coming to you regularly uh, about every three months. All right, so I am going to, let's, uh, why don't we have a, a word of prayer and then we will close this session. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that, uh, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We, we acknowledge that you are the one who created the universe, you created us, and we thank you that you love us so much that you sent your own son into our world to die in our place so that we could have everlasting life and we could live with you forever, Lord. We thank you for revealing these things to us in nature, but also especially in your word. 
And we, uh, we just close out this session uh, giving all of the glory to you in Jesus' name.